I think these are images that will remain with me for the rest of my life. These moments that you can remember, you know, every single details of it. Hi everyone and welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. We've got a spring in our step this week because not only is it the British Grand Prix, which was the first F1 race I ever attended back in 1983, Beyond the Grid has won a gong at the British Podcast Awards. And to cap it all, we have one of the sport's biggest stars on the show this week, Charles Leclerc. He may not have the car to challenge for the title, but Charles is flying this year. He's had two pole positions in Monaco and Baku, and he's shown incredible consistency in the races. He's currently sixth in the World Championship, making him the highest placed driver without a top three finish. And surely it's only a matter of time before he adds to his tally of 12 podiums. Charles been on the podcast before, back in 2018, when he was still racing for Alfa Romeo Sauber in his rookie season. So our chat this time focuses on his years in red with Ferrari. We reflect on his stupendous first season with the team in 2019, when he won a couple of races and came so close in Bahrain as well. And we look at how he's coped with the climb back to competitiveness after a tough 2020. We also talk about teammates and team bosses, but Charles' talents aren't limited to driving racing cars. He's developed a multitude of interests away from racing since we last spoke, so we discuss those as well. And let's just say he's multi-talented. It was great to spend time with him again. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Charles, it's great to see you. Last time you came on the pod, you were still a Sauber driver. <laughs> yeah. There's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. A little bit, yeah. Things have changed uh, quite, uh, quite quickly. Let's just deal with the whole big picture of Ferrari. In what ways has driving for Ferrari changed your life? Well, I mean, first of all, it was a dream since uh, since child. Uh, so obviously it was just incredible to know that I will be driving for the team I've always dreamed to be with since being a child. Then secondly, in my private life also a little bit because Ferrari drivers are a bit easier to recognize than when I was in, in Alfa Romeo. So it, it changed a little bit. But on the other hand, I have to say that I'm quite lucky in Monaco. People are used to see Formula One drivers. So I'm actually having a normal life. Can you remember your first day's work for the team? I do. I was very, very impressed by how many people were working on the cars. Uh, I mean, in Ferrari, we are a lot of people. And at the beginning, I felt quite lost, to be honest. I really didn't know to who I should speak to if I had that or that issue. Uh, but thankfully, they really helped me. And they seen, I think, that I was lost in the first days and uh, and helped me by putting just my, my engineer as, a, as, as the person to talk to for anything. And then my engineer will help me to just go to the, to the right guys at the right place. Yeah, but it was very, very impressive the first few days. How long did it take you to get your feet under the table at the team? feel comfortable I was comfortable from the from the beginning I had a lot of things to learn but uh, it felt like a like I've known them since a long time straight away on the social uh, relationships um, then to feel comfortable in the way such a big team works probably nearly a year I will say 
an earlier year to understand exactly the dynamics of the team, how you face issues, how you react to uh, those uh, problems. Yeah, probably almost a year. It's amazing, isn't it? It's a long time, really. It is Given a long time. Given that you're time. the man who only spent one year in every formula on the way up. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is a very, very long time. But it's very, very interesting. To live it feels a lot shorter um, and you can see all the steps and every time you are learning something and that you apply it then you are you are just getting a better uh, a better understanding of how everything works and also you feel more in control of the of the situation how much better are you now than you were when you arrived well i feel like i've grown a lot as a driver as a person how much better is difficult to quantify but i i definitely feel a better driver compared to when i when i first arrived just how much detail we are going into after every um, difficult races but also after every good races we've had uh, you always try to analyze absolutely everything and it makes it so interesting i mean it's a it's a sport where i'm always learning uh, and i think anybody on this grid well everybody on this grid is actually learning every time they get into the car it's so complex to extract 100 out of the car that you, you learn something every time you, you get in it. So it's, uh, it's very interesting. We're going to come on to some races in a minute. But before we do that, you've developed a few interests since you last came on the podcast. And I want to talk to you about some of them. Piano, for example. I've seen, no, look, I was looking at your Instagram and there's some fingers playing the piano. How do I know they're yours? Good question. <laughs> uh, Tell me about your journey. Bring, bring a piano at the next racetrack and I will probably show you that it's actually me that, uh, that plays it. But I, I enjoy it so much. I was playing very little when I was younger, but I've always enjoyed it but never took any lessons or whatsoever. It was just to relax and that's it. And then with the first lockdown, I started again to get on the piano and became obsessed with it. Then bought more serious piano and got into lessons. I did probably three or four months of lessons. Once I knew how to read the music, Basically, I kind of stopped, even though I want to re restart now, but just with the season, there are too many things to do that I cannot really have the time to, to take lessons, but I want to, to uh, take them back. But yeah, overall, I'm just, and every time I've got like 10, 15 minutes free at home, getting on the piano and, and try to relax. What is it about the piano? I don't know, just music. It makes me, makes me relax. Otherwise, I just can't stop thinking about racing. So I'm, I'm just uh, putting myself on the piano and, and think about everything else apart from racing. Does your girlfriend, does Charlotte play? Yes, she does. Nice little duet together? Yeah, actually, we've tried. It's not been very successful, <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's nice. Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably better having two pianos and then playing together than playing while four hands on, on the piano. Here's the problem, though, because you've got a Steinway, haven't you? I do. No apartment's big enough for two Steinways. Yeah, but it's, uh, how, do you say, how do you say? Um, oh, is it an upright? Yeah, it is an upright piano. Oh, it's not a grand piano. No, not yet. I might do the, 
the step once I've got a, a big up on. I had visions of a crane having to lift your Steinway into your apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was uh, quite uh, quite tricky. Uh, but uh, everything, I mean, the, the piano is in uh, in the perfect place now. I'm so amazed. Okay. It's fantastic that you, that you play it. And do you sort of find yourself in a hotel in the, somewhere in the world and maybe go and play in reception? And We have actually a piano here in Austria in the hotel, but I haven't played yet. Uh, I haven't played. I, I think I'm a bit too shy to uh, to show my skills uh, to the big public yet. Well, look, it's a fantastic skill. I'm very jealous. Mm -hmm. uh, look, another thing I, I gather that you've taken up vaguely recently is chess. Yeah. Between the two Austrian races, you played against your teammate, Carlos Sainz. But what got you into chess? I was playing when I was younger, too, with my uh, grandfather, actually. And then I completely stopped playing. And around... Well, probably at the beginning of the year with Carlos, basically. We were on a flight, we didn't know what to do, and I had this chess app on my phone. And I was like, let's let's play chess. And then since then, we are so competitive that we were actually more or less at the same level for some reasons. And we found it very, very... And since that day, we just keep working. Now I've got all the app, I'm watching YouTube videos to get better. And we are just so competitive with everything we do. So, Have you watched The Queen's Gambit? Not yet. I but thought that might have triggered me. your interest in chess. Not even. No, 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 not even. But everyone is telling me to watch it. It's really good. And sales of chess boards went up 87% around the world. That's as crazy. a result. In the first three weeks of the Queen's Gambit being released. Nice. So that's chess. You're a man of many talents. Huh. Because I now want to come <laughs> on to paddle. I don't even know what paddle is, isn't it? It's some weird form of tennis. Paddle isn't it? is incredible. Weird you, form of tennis. You should, you should play paddle. Really? Sell paddle to me. Why would I enjoy it? It's easier to play than tennis. Do you play tennis? Yes. Okay. And the, the fact that it's easier than tennis appeals immediately. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was struggling quite a lot with tennis. And every time you do a small mistake, it has a huge consequence. And basically, you, uh, you lose the point. In paddle, it's a lot easier to play okay. You do a lot less mistakes. Why? Is it because you can use the walls, right? Yeah, you can use the walls. And the rackets are just more forgiving. And I don't know, the thing that you play with the walls gives something that I love. And I think also for my racing in general, just the reflexes, anticipation of where the ball is going to go, this kind of helps also. So I'm not doing it for racing. I'm doing it because I love it. But I think it might help me also for some other things. Are you any good? I'm playing quite a bit, but I've started only probably a year ago. So I am okay. It's Spanish, isn't it? Is that where it, it originated? Is. Spanish? Mexi it is. Maybe Actually, Mexico? Caco, Carlos's cousin, oh, yeah? is very good. Have you played him? Have you played Carlos? I did. Oh my God, what is <laughs> you and Carlos? Of course I did. And uh, yeah. Who won? I think I was with him against Carlos Senior, so uh, Carlos's father. And Kako, Carlos' cousin, and we lost. Let's talk about the sciences then, Charles. Did you have much say on Carlos coming to Ferrari? Not really. I mean, I, I knew it once it was more or less done, but, uh, but it was the decision of the team. And just tell me, I mean, the relationship seems from the outside really good. Is it it is really good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is really good. We are quite similar on, on quite a bit of things. We like the same activities, so paddle, chess... There's also golf that we haven't uh, gone through yet. Uh, but let's not go into golf he's quite because good golf, he's way he? too good for me. Yeah. You only want to play golf with people of your own standard. Exactly. Yeah. No fun if they're much better. Yeah. He's just a, a fun guy, nice guy, very easy to get on with. 
In a racing car, what are Carlos's biggest strengths? The way he works is his biggest strengths. He's a very, um, very clever guy, and he really knows how to build up a weekend. You know, he's uh, he's very good at at building up the weekend from FP to the race, working well on the car on the very important points of the car. Not really, he's not really looking for the lap time until it really matters, which is in qualifying. But he's he's always there, very consistent too. Is he the best teammate you've ever had? Just looking at the whole package. If you had Marcus Ericsson at Alfa Romeo, then you came to Ferrari, Sebastian Vettel, now Carlos. It is a difficult question. Carlos is a very, very good teammate. I, I wouldn't know in between Seb and Carlos, I think. Um, Seb in his good days, I mean, the last year was more difficult for, for Seb, but in his good days, he was just incredible and just incredibly difficult to, to beat, uh, if not impossible. And Carlos is just very, very consistent. So it's, it's different approaches, but both of them were, were very, very strong. So you have all of these off-track interests that you share with Carlos. What about Seb? With Seb, it was a little bit of a, of a different relationship. I saw him a little bit more like an older brother. I mean, he had so much experience that it was different. It was not the same type of competition that I had with, with Seb than what I have with Carlos. With Carlos, we are more or less at the same age. We are so competitive with everything. Seb had more experience, so he was a little bit more... Yeah, he was a bit less competitive with everything. If I wanted to win something, he will basically a bit let me let me win this thing and I will be happy and he wouldn't care. With Carlos, it's a little bit different. I can see he's so, so pissed off if I'm beating him at, at anything. It can be the most, the stupidest thing and he will be so angry. And same for me. But with Seb, what you've just described is only off track, right? On track, he was as competitive with you as the next person, right? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Then once you put the helmet, uh, there's uh, this whole relationship. You, it stops. You just think about the performance. You just think about trying to extract the maximum out of the car and especially beat the guy that has the same car as yours. Did it get a bit awkward with Seb? I'm thinking Brazil 2019 in particular. Charles Leclerc down the inside of Sebastian Vettel and he moves himself up into fourth place. Vettel will get DRS down the retro Aposta. Can he now fight back? Leclerc made it very tough earlier. Uh, for the, oh, oh no, he's got a puncture. They made contact and Charles Leclerc's got a puncture caused by contact with his teammate Sebastian Vettel. Uh, oh, and Vettel's got problems too. But then we came here, didn't we? Okay, there was the break the first six months of last year but then we came here and you guys made contact again at turn three in Austria they're all keeping out of trouble so far apart from the two Ferraris Sebastian Vettel and Charles Leclerc made contact yes they did heavy oh, contact look at that. both Ferraris trying to fight over the same piece of tarmac <laughs> can you just describe that the debrief after those incidents how hard was it between the two of you it wasn't that hard actually I mean Brazil was probably the the moment where it was quite difficult, but right after the race, only right after the race, obviously with the heat of the moment, it's not easy. Then I think the thing that was more difficult to manage is how much the media are coming into play and putting a little bit of, uh, of excitement in this, uh, trying to make things exciting and trying to make things to the people that there were actually tensions when there weren't. So we knew there weren't tensions. But we were also asked at every races we came whether there was a tension. And, and yeah, I, I think we managed it very well. And uh, there was never 
any tension in between us. In Austria, I think it was quite straightforward because whenever I do a mistake, I'm just putting my hand up and that's it. For Brazil, I had my opinion, <laughs> he had his opinion. So, and we never really got the answer that we, we both wanted. So uh, basically it stayed like this, but we dealt with it uh, very well and there was not any tensions. How's your relationship with Sebastian changed since you've stopped being teammates? It's very similar as before. Very similar as before. I mean, we always talk whenever we see each other. We, we still have discussions, conversations about how is it going for him in Aston? How is it going for me in, in Ferrari? And, uh, and yeah, the, the relationship is the same. Now, when you look at all the guys at the front of Formula One, they all have a very close relationship with their boss. I'm thinking Lewis Hamilton, Toto Wolff. I'm thinking Max Verstappen, Christian Horner. Can you just describe your relationship with Ferrari boss Mattia Benotto? He's going very well. I mean, Mattia knows me since uh, since a long time now, since I am in, uh, in GP3. So it's been a long time that he sees me coming. He was not at the position he is now at the time, but uh, that didn't matter. And now to have him as my boss feels, uh, feels great. I mean, we've had a, a very good moments together. Now we are in a slightly more difficult moment, but that didn't change, that never changed our relationship. We have a very good relationship. We are very close and, uh, and yeah, everything is going good. You've got a contract with Ferrari that takes you through to the end of 2024. How much of a risk was it to sign such a long-term deal? A couple of years ago now. Well, I've signed with Ferrari, so I don't call that a risk. <laughs> I mean, for me, it was an incredible opportunity. Um, as I was saying, the first time I knew I was going to be a Ferrari driver, I could not believe it. And it's a, it's a dream for me. For me, it was, it was not a risk. I mean, I was signing for five years for the team I've always been dreaming of. So yeah, then surely, of course, we are, we are going through a more difficult moment. But that only motivates me to, to push even more the team to try and, and, uh, and bring it back to where it, uh, it belongs. Would you be happy to spend the rest of your Formula One career in red? Of course I would be, yeah. But I would be even more happy if we get back to winning uh, because that's what matters. And I know that this is what matters also for the whole team. We are pushing like crazy to try and come back uh, at winning because uh, this is what this team is used to do. Because it's been a roller coaster, hasn't it? I think back to 2019, Bahrain, your first pole position, sitting there in front of me. I'm convinced you're about to win your first Grand Prix. And then, of course, reliability comes into play and you finish third. But to hit the ground running so fast with Ferrari, you must have had to pinch yourself back then. Oh, it felt incredible. can remember exactly like the, the grid, especially. I remember it was very, very, very busy. There were like, I don't know, like 30 photographs around me before getting into the car. And I was trying to put myself in my zone, trying to not think about too much about the surrounding. Uh, I did a bad start, then came back, took the lead, pulled away, thought that everything was in control, and then the failure. Uh, not the failure, but we had a problem with the engine, which cost us the win. It was a difficult moment, but on the other hand, I think I kind of proved to myself that I could do it. That's what counted the most this day, even though it was obviously difficult to lose the win. That's interesting. So it's kind of a confidence thing, a breakthrough moment in that way. I deserve to be at the top table. Yeah, it's not I, I deserve, but it's more I can do it. If I if I put everything I got, if I don't do any mistakes, if I do the job in the car, I can actually fight for victory. And uh, from that day, I knew that this was a possibility. Charles, you knew that. You knew that already. I didn't. I didn't. No, I didn't. 
Well, look, how did it feel in that 2019 season to arrive at every race knowing that you had a chance of winning or at least a podium? The podium was not really in my head, to be honest. Um, it was winning. It was race, winning. Right? Only winning. But I knew we had an opportunity at winning every races. Mercedes was obviously extremely strong and probably a bit stronger than us that year. But I, I knew that there was probably an opportunity to win any, anyway. Um, so it was good. I mean... Uh, it felt amazing. First year in Ferrari, first opportunities to win. Uh, it was very exciting. Did the success almost come too quickly? No, I wouldn't say too quickly. It's never too quickly. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> okay. it's great, it's great to it have now. it but as early as possible. Did you appreciate it, how hard it is to get to that point at the time, knowing what you know now after 2020 and this difficult start that you had in 21? Yeah, it came quickly, but I think it's different once you live it because you can see every step's you have done in your career, how they've paid off, it just feels a lot slower once you live it. So from the outside, it might seem very quick. And obviously looking back, it is very quick because in my second year, I've already signed with Ferrari and fighting for wins. And this is incredible. This was an incredible opportunity. But on the other hand, once you live it, once you live your career, I know also how much work I've done before that in karting in single-seater than in my first year of Formula 1. It's not always been easy. And there's also been very difficult moments. But uh, yeah, once you live it, you, you feel, well, you see it a lot slower. It's interesting. Now, let's talk about the two victories that year in very different circumstances. I'm sorry to sort of remind you of a bad moment, but of course that whole spa weekend was such a roller coaster for everybody, let alone you with Antoine's death in, in Formula 2. Charles Leclerc wins a Formula One Grand Prix. First victory in F1. This one is for Antoine. When you look back at that whole weekend now, what do you think? It's very difficult. Very, very difficult. Because on one hand, I've lost a friend with which I've raced in karting. I can remember my first ever important race, which was the French Championship. Antoine had won it. We were with Pierre, we were with Esteban. And yes, yeah, so obviously on the Saturday, it was a big shock once we've all learned that Antoine has passed away. And this is probably the image that I'll keep from this weekend. I didn't enjoy it as much as I should have this first win for that reason, obviously. Yeah, it was just a very strange weekend. On one hand, just like I've, when I've lost my father in Baku in Formula 2, I think it's always nice to just prove yourself that you can perform in those very difficult moments. The main point that I take out of these weekends is just uh, the pain that I had inside me as a person to, to lose a friend and to, to lose a father. When did you mourn the loss of your friend? Because you can't have had time with that weekend and then, of course, Monza the following weekend. Did it take a while to sort of hit home? I think the week after was the, um, the funerals. And this kind of made me realize the whole thing. Because once you are in the heat of the moment, with the racing also, obviously you realize that you've lost a friend. But on the other hand, you... I was trying at my best to try and think about my race to try and because I still was starting the Sunday in pole position for a race and uh, I still had to go and try to win it. So I, I had to be on it. So it was very, very difficult the preparation until the Sunday and try to stay to stay focused. But I will say at the funeral, then I, I kind of accepted uh, the, the loss and and try to um, not to forget it. I hate to say forget it, but to try and and keep it in my mind, but in a, in a more positive way. How did his death and, of course, Jules Bianchi before him 
change your attitude to the sport? It never really changed for me. How come? I don't know. I can't explain. Racing is my passion. It's my life. It's always been my life. I'm, I'm doing that since I, am, uh, since I am three and a half years old. So since I'm very, very young. I probably didn't know when I was three and a half years old that it was a dentary sport. I probably realized it a little bit later. But I knew it at one point that it was a dentary sport, that things could happen, bad things could happen. Obviously, speaking about Jules, I've realized it with the incident of Jules. But for me, it was, I mean, every time I'm putting my helmet, I have a smile on. No other things in life can bring me such a smile. For me, the relationship with the sport is this, is I'm happy whenever I put a helmet. I know that there's danger, but on the other hand, it's what makes me happy. So there are, there are no questions for me. Let's talk Monza. Full house, mad Tifosi cheering you on. Pressure race. Lewis Hamilton right <laughs> on your gearbox for lap after lap. Yeah. Special. He can see the celebration starting. He's got one more corner, the famous Parabolica to go. Mercedes threw everything at him today. Charles Leclerc has coped brilliantly. He won in Spa. He wins in Monza. Charles Leclerc is the winner of the 2019 Italian Grand Prix. You've done it. This race was incredible. I mean, the amount of pressure there was not only the race day, but during the whole week. We are starting, I think we started like the Tuesday or Wednesday by going to events in um, Milan. Was it in Milan? Yeah, I think it was in Milan where there were a lot of fans. So there was a huge amount of support. And then Saturday with the crazy qualifying there was, we just started on Poland Sunday. And you can just feel how much it means to Italy whenever you have an opportunity to win at Monza with Ferrari. How did you get in and out of the track at Monza? Because you have to go through the fans to get to the paddock. <laughs> how do you negotiate that as a Ferrari driver? I'm always trying to stop as much as I can. I thought they might put a bag over your head and just smuggle <laughs> you in, otherwise you'd never get there. No, not really, not really. No, no, no. And I, don't, I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, there's a lot of support. There are a lot of people, but I was trying to stop. I mean, it was taking quite a bit of time to get out of the track. But yeah, it's just such a nice feeling to be arriving at the track and to have so much support. It feels incredible. And that's why it makes it so, so, so special to be a Ferrari driver. And that podium as well. It's yeah. mental, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I've still got images. I think these are images that will remain with me for, for the rest of my life. These moments that you can remember, you know, every single details of it. I remember searching, trying to search for my mother that had just watched the Grand Prix in the grandstand. Um, hey, mom was in the grandstand? Yeah, my mom was in the grandstand. <laughs> you uh, nobody recognized her. Sea of red below you. <laughs> I couldn't see her. No. I couldn't see her. But uh, my brother took her from the grandstand to the pits once I, once I won. But it was, just, uh, it was just incredible. Yeah, what, a, what an experience. I've been very lucky to, uh, to be winning there. Was that win at Monza the moment where it started to shift internally? for you in terms of the support within the team? Did you feel that that's the one where after that, the whole team was just whatever you want, show <laughs> we'll do it. No, no. And I've never felt that way. And to be honest, I, I don't want to feel this way because Formula One is all about competition. I love competition. I love being able to fight against the best. And I don't want to have more chance 
than the guy next to me. I want the same chances as him and I want to beat him just fair and square. And I think it's never been a problem. And obviously there was also Sebastian Vettel was my teammate. He had won a lot more than I did. So uh, yeah, there's also this respect that the team had for Seb and that I had for Seb. I never really felt the shift of power as you as you are describing it. Okay, that's interesting in itself. Is it true that Seb's debriefs go on for hours and hours and hours? Is that right? Well, I thought he was the longest guy of the grid doing um, comments, but I, I think he kind of can have a, a competition with Carlos now. Carlos is so long too. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I've had two teammates that have just very, very long at debriefs. So what about your rivals, Charles? Once you'd won with Ferrari those two races, did the likes of Lewis Hamilton, did you feel a shift in how they treated you around and about the paddock or in the driver's briefings that were still in person back then? Not really again, because I think in Formula One, we've got a massive respect for every drivers and uh, this is what's what's nice every time there's a young driver coming to Formon he has got the respect out of every other drivers and uh, this has always been the case do you see any similarities in terms of approach between yourself and someone like lewis i don't know lewis is incredible he's incredibly consistent I'm a bit more of a crazy horse sometimes, <laughs> going for the special overtake, and he's probably a bit more calm, just just waiting for it. So I, I have to say we probably have a little bit of a different approach. How different is your rivalry with Max in Formula One compared to when you were karting together, for example? Oh, it's the same. It's the same. At the moment, it's obviously a little bit uh, diminished because I cannot uh, fight against him, unfortunately. But uh, if you look at the fight in Silverstone 2019, I think you can understand that there's quite a bit of, of competition. And it's always been the case. I mean, it's uh, it's nice. We've grown up together in karting. We've always been fighting together. And now we uh, we find ourselves again in uh, in Formula One. So it's, uh, it's great. And I can't wait to be... Uh, well, to bring back the team uh, where it deserves to be and fight against Max for the title. And what's Kimi been like with you? Because, of course, you replaced him in the team. Any issues there? No, 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 no. I don't speak so much with Kimi. I don't think he speaks with a lot of people. Um, but, you know, it's always been very straightforward. If he had something to tell me, he would. And uh, if he didn't have anything to tell me, he wouldn't speak. So, uh, yeah, there, there's never been any tension or whatsoever let's bring it up to the current day monaco or baku which was the better pole lap probably monaco monaco is so ah, that's sentimental isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it is probably also a little bit sentimental but it makes it better because uh, whenever you whenever i finished that lap i knew it's a bit like monza at the end uh, there were so much emotions before getting into the car that is very, very difficult to manage those emotions and to uh, actually get into the car and perform at your 100%. And I managed to do that in Monaco, so it was, uh, it was great. How good was the lap in Baku then? was very good too. Only that Baku seemed more unexpected, or at least from the outside. Same, same, same for us. I mean, it was very unexpected. But Baku is not the same feeling as Monaco. Monaco is just the rhythm in those Formula 1 cars. It's very difficult to describe to put into words but it's just incredible everything is going so quick you cannot do any mistakes obviously which i did at the end of qualifying but let's jump that um but yeah it was just uh yeah i just i just love this track and after the difficulties of 2020 did these two poles almost mean more 
than the seven you got in 2019? Does it, did you almost appreciate them more because you'd had the down, you'd been to the bottom of the trough? Definitely, because after 2020, it's been a very, very difficult season for us with... Uh one lucky podium, one unexpected podium, also a little bit lucky. No pole positions, which I missed. And then coming to 2021, we did the first race and we definitely did not expect that it will be a year where we will put it on pole. Then arriving in Monaco, we kind of expected of being a bit more competitive, but we definitely expected Mercedes and, and Red Bull to be more competitive than us. And boom, we were there. So it was a, it was a big surprise, uh, but it was nice. Baku, I think, was the biggest surprise because, um, yeah, we definitely did not expect to be competitive there. Now, the disappointment of Monaco of not starting your home race, that accident at the end of Quali, how did that disappointment compare to Baku 2019? Charles Leclerc has gone straight on into the barriers at turn eight. I am stupid. I am stupid. Physically, he looks absolutely fine. The bad news is that he has just blown what was shaping up to be a very fine chance of at least a front row here this afternoon. Ah, uh, Baku 2019 was uh, was a difficult one to like, take. I feel like oh, why are we do. I don't mean to dwell on the negatives. It's just it's quite an interesting comparison. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. You're at different stages of your career and yeah. Baku 2019 was okay, a disappointment because I knew that uh, the pole was possible that day and I put all the efforts in the bin. But on the other hand, I still had the Sunday to come back. In Monaco, the difficult part was was that we couldn't start um, the race on Sunday. This was very difficult. And obviously it's at home too, so, so the disappointment just gets bigger. So tell us about this car. What are its strengths? Why is its performance a little bit up and down? The strength, I think, is our balance in general. I think we are doing a very good job by setting up the car in the right way to just have a good balance. And this helps us in many occasions. Uh, I think that's also one of the reasons why we are so quick in qualifying. But on the other hand, we are struggling for now to get on top of where the car needs to be exactly to be performing at its best at the race. And we've seen that in Paul Ricard, where it has been a big disappointment, a big surprise, obviously, to be struggling so much in, uh, in, in the race. But also, we've shown that we can turn things around. And then uh, last week in, uh, here in Austria, we had a very good race pace, but a bit less in qualifying. So it's a fine line that we need to balance out, that we haven't found the right balance yet. But we are working on it and we are working well. So uh, um, I hope that we can find the, the right balance soon. Sounds really frustrating. <laughs> it is It is frustrating because one race, it's one way, the other race is the other, but you never get the best out of both worlds. But it's, uh, yeah, it's part of life, I guess. And uh, we'll try to uh, to find the right balance. Charles, would you sacrifice the remainder of 2021 if it guaranteed you being competitive in 22 with the change in regulations? Yes. Yes, of course. I mean, if it guaranteed me, if you had the contract <laughs> just in front of me telling me that if we sacrifice 2021 for a competitive 2022, I would be happy to take it. But nobody has this, uh, this uh, guarantee unfortunately. So where are you pushing the team? Oh, more more to focus on 2022. And I think uh, this is clear for, for everyone. I mean, 2022 will be a huge opportunity for everyone. These new cars are going to stay for many years after that. And this year, okay, we've still, we are still fighting with McLaren for the third place in the constructors. But at the end, we know that our goal is to fight for the first position very, very soon. And uh, this will be from 2022 onwards and not this year. So I will be happy to give up about the third place 
in the constructors in 2021 to be fighting for the first place in 2022. So British Grand Prix next. Yes. Silverstone, the home of British motorsport. That's what we call it. I love it. And I've always What do you been... love about Silverstone? <sighs> that I've been competitive in the past, I think. Uh, I think I like tracks wherever, wherever I'm competitive. Silverstone is one of my strong tracks, but I just like the rhythm. I like high speed and uh, Silverstone with those cars is, is just incredible. And we're going to have a lot of fans. Always Ferrari fans, wherever you go. Exactly, uh, as always. But yeah, it's it's nice to finally see that life is getting a little bit more towards a normal life, like before COVID. I miss it, especially once you are driving for Ferrari. I think you can feel it even more because Ferrari has got so much support all around the world, wherever we go. And with COVID, not having the public, we didn't have as much support. Well, obviously, we had all the support on social media that I'm always trying to, uh, to be on top of. But... At the track, we, we had nobody. So it's a bit, uh, it's a bit sad, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to have back the public in the grandstand. You know you say you love high speed. How challenging is the high speed at Silverstone? Do you have to take a deep breath, or are these cars just so good anyone can go flat through cops, for example? Oh, well, we shall try. You shall, you shall try and do F1 you know and try to go flat out it, around is it, cops. Is it corner numbers for you at Silverstone? Or when I say cops, do you know which corner I mean? Yeah, it's turn nine, no? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I'm very bad with corner numbers, so it's a miracle <laughs> I managed to say that's right. But um, I think it's very difficult for us to put it into words. I would love, I mean, this is another dream I have in my life, is to try one day, I'll probably have to speak with Ferrari, but to do a, a very similar car in terms of performance to a Formula One car and to bring people around uh, just for them to experience what it's like to be driving with so much downforce, with so much power, is just incredible. The speed are crazy. The Gs are crazy. I don't think we are breathing in those high speeds. It's just crazy. Well, look, very good luck in the race. Do you go back to Maranello between Austria and Silverstone or is it are you going to get some time out in Monaco? What's the plan? Just give us an idea of your schedule. No, I do. I do go to, uh, I will go to Maranello to uh, have some preparations because it will also be the first time this year we have a sprint race on the Saturday. So we'll have to do some meetings to try and, and understand the exact format, how we can maximize that format. Are you looking forward to it? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a good opportunity this year to at least try something different. And I think we just need to be realistic enough once it's been done, whether it added something to the weekend or it was just not as great as we expected, uh, which can also be the case. But uh, yeah, so I will be in, in Maranello for that. And uh, also a little bit of simulator to do the correlation with the two races we've had in Austria. The correlation, I'll, I don't know if everyone knows what it is, but it's basically we are getting into the simulator with the data that we have of the real car and trying to correlate that in the best way we can just for the simulator to be as close as possible to reality. And, um, and then we'll be working also on the simulator for Silverstone. Where do you stay when you're in Maranello? Is it the Planet Hotel? Isn't that where everyone stays or not? No, I actually have an apartment that I'm renting that whenever I'm in Maranello, I'm, I'm staying there. Is that a new thing? No. No, okay. no, no. It's been uh, from 2020, beginning of 2020, beginning of last year. Opposite the factory or? Not really. I'm like uh, 25 minutes away in the mountains a little bit. Oh, wow. It's nice. Sounds lovely. Yeah. I brought a piano there. So I can play piano. Chess <laughs> <laughs> I can set. play piano. Yeah. No, no chess. I'm not playing alone yet. I'm not that lonely. <laughs> Does Charlotte come with you? Or, oh, hang on. You lock Charlotte out of your flat, don't you? That's what you do. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Don't remind her that. 
I but, bet you she reminds you, right? Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> that was a great story. Oh, Charles, it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast again. And, and thank you for your time. Good luck with everything. And seems thank to you. me that we just got to get through the rest of 2021 with my Charles Leclerc Ferrari hat on and roll on 22. And good luck with that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Isn't it great to hear from Charles again? He's one of the most engaging characters on the grid, and our conversation was littered with little gems that help us to understand him a little more. He comes across as very self-critical, yet he has a lightness of touch that prevents any difficult moments, such as the crash at Monaco this year, getting too heavy. And that will help to ensure his improvement as a driver and his progression towards being a world champion. I loved hearing about his life away from the track and how he plays chess and paddle with teammate Carlos Sainz. Can you imagine the intensity of their games? But he also shed a lot of light on why his relationship with Sainz works so well. And I found his thoughts on Sebastian Vettel fascinating too, and why that relationship was different, but also worked. Charles, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up and best of luck, not only at Silverstone this weekend, but for the remainder of the year as well. Before we move on, as ever, please send in any stories or thoughts you have on Charles. And it doesn't have to be from Formula One. It can be from anything. Have you watched him play paddle? Well, let me know. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Norbert Haug after last week's show. It was great to hear from Norbert again, and a lot of what he said made an impression on you. Alan Foraker got in touch with this. The Norbert episode was great, he says. So many good stories and so much inside knowledge. Probably could have kept talking for a whole day and more. Well, yes, Alan, there's a lot more in Norbert's knowledge bank than I had time to uncover. Maybe we could do a part two one day. And on that topic, listen to this from Klong X. Excellent episode. As soon as I saw the title, I knew it would be good. A giant in motorsport and a down-to-earth lovely person. Fantastic, Norbert. We need a part two, Tom. Well, there you go. Maybe we do need a part two. And thanks for the note. And as you say, Norbert is incredibly down-to-earth. And that's one of the reasons why he had such great relationships with people up and down the pit lane. Mr. Trick had this to say. Norbert is a lad, he says. I remember years ago, one of Mika's V10s exploding, and he said it was an electrical issue. Well, I don't know if that's true, Mr. Trick, but Norbert rarely missed a trick and always fervently defended the three-pointed star. And finally, this from Zenzi. Norbert's the pride of Stuttgart. Indeed, Zenzi, I'm sure he is. Well, we'll leave it there, and I'm sorry if I haven't read out your message. Thank you to everyone who sent in messages. I've read them all and love them. Well, that's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Charles again. And remember to send in your thoughts and stories on him. And as ever, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>